grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Today, Jane Sleeker and I will talk more about the various forms of grief and loss that we may encounter in life and how the adoption experience adds an extra layer of complexity when tackling these experiences. Hi, Jane. I know this is a subject that you are very passionate about on a professional and personal level. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have to say, Joe, it was really beautiful to hear the dialogue between you and Lois in the last episode. Um, you know, to hear about your experiences of losing an adoptive parent. Um, and I guess one of the things about loss is that, yes, it can be really painful, but it also kind of gives us that that time and that opportunity to reflect on how much love we often have for those people in our lives and how they've impacted us. Um, and I guess when we can find peace with that, that can be a really beautiful thing. Jane, that's so true. And I know that you've been also touched by the loss of your adoptive parents. And in some ways, your loss reflects the fears that Lois and I had as children, that we might lose our parents at a younger age and unexpectedly. Yeah, I could definitely resonate with a lot of the things I heard you and Lois talking about. Um, I guess in contrast to your stories, the loss of my adoptive parents wasn't actually something that I gave a lot of thought to or a lot of worry to when I was younger. Um, Even though my adoptive parents were older as well, they were 36 and 37 when they adopted me. That's a theme we often hear with adoption, actually, that um, adoptive parents are often a bit older. Yeah. Throughout my childhood and early 20s even, um, my adoptive parents were both extremely fit and healthy. Um, Health was a real priority in their lives and, well, they were definitely a lot more health conscious than I (laughs) ate healthy food and they did lots of different forms of exercise. Um, So I just assumed that they would live a long life and that they'd be here for many years to come. Um, In fact, they're actually on a holiday in Tasmania hiking only weeks before my dad's death. Um, He was diagnosed uh, with cancer after just having some sort of shortness of breath. He thought he might have a flu that wasn't going away. And um, he was diagnosed with cancer and he died three weeks later. Um, And then my mum died five months after that in a pretty shocking accident and They were both only 63 at that time and I was 26. So um, that was, you know, not something I expected. Um, And interestingly, prior to that happening, I'd already taken a a pretty big interest in grief and loss theory throughout my studies and 
um, at, the, at that time my parents died, I was already working in the area of adoption. So um, it's interesting that, that that was something I already knew quite a lot about. And I guess it's only become now stronger that I'm pretty passionate about this area because um, it's something that affects all of us and it's something that people can benefit from learning about, I think. Yeah, and I am so sorry that you experienced that loss so early and unexpectedly, Jane. It's um, yeah. it's such a great loss to experience at any age, but particularly in your 20s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this episode, we'll be focusing on loss and grief both generally and in relation to adoption. However, we won't be focusing on adoption-related trauma. And so before we start, can you just help us um, distinguish between those two? Yeah, there were a number of things that uh, came up, I think, in your discussion with Lois that were quite relevant to the experience of trauma that's also strongly associated with adoption. Lois mentioned, for example, the lack of mirroring that she experienced in her adoptive family growing up. Uh, This is something that a lot of adopted people talk about. It's a concept that Nancy Verrier um, came up with in her books, The Primal Wound, and coming home to self. She's a psychotherapist and also happens to be an adoptive mother who um, had her own biological daughter and an adopted daughter and who noticed that there were some fairly key differences um, in the development of her two children. So she has actually described that lack of mirroring that adopted people experience as a type of chronic trauma growing up in a family where you don't see any reflection of yourself in the appearance of your relatives, in their mannerisms, uh, and it can go further than that as well. I know that when I reunited with my birth family, I realised the way we talked about things was similar. We used similar words, even though we'd never uh, met before. So for me, they, the effect of suddenly having that mirroring was actually quite profound, and I felt a lot more grounded uh, as a person. Uh, So growing up without the mirroring is defined as a trauma that can affect our sense of self and how we develop. Yeah, that's so interesting. I know um, growing up with three siblings who were biological children of my adoptive parents, I was constantly reminded that I had no reflection in the family. And there was 20 years between when I met my mother and father. And I have to say that when I met my mother, I was desperately hoping to find a strong physical similarity And there just wasn't one. I suddenly had this beautiful young mother. She was 37 when we met and this awesome younger brother. But physically, I felt no more mirroring than I had in my own adoptive family. And it wasn't until I met my father and his side of the family at 39, so, you know, 20 years down, that I was Mm -hmm. knocked off my feet because I finally saw this hall of mirrors around me, both physically Mm -hmm. and even, like, personality and um, career-wise. But I have to say, though, I've discovered over the years that more similarities with my mother's side have sort of been teased out. And I think it was a slow burn because those similarities were more subtle and they're more about spirit and temperament. Mm. So what else can you tell us about adoption trauma? Well, the other thing that Nancy Verrier talks about, uh, so she talks about that chronic trauma, the lack of mirroring, but she also talks about adoptees experiencing an acute trauma that affects um, infants and then can have a lasting impact. And that's to do with um, the baby being separated from the mother straight up 
Um, and it sort of, I was reminded of that when you and Lois were talking about the separate separation anxiety and you were saying that as a child, you found it really hard to go to sleepovers and I actually yeah. experienced that as well. Yeah. Um, and then on the flip side of that for mothers and fathers that have lost a child to adoption, obviously being separated from their babies um, is a loss, but it, it can also, there can also be a lot of trauma associated with that experience because of how they were treated at the time by their families, by social systems. So that trauma can affect them as well as the loss. Yeah. Thanks for making that distinction. And we've got um, episodes planned where we will explore adoption-related trauma in greater detail. But Mm -hmm. for now, let's focus on the experience of loss and how it relates to adoption. Can you tell us some of the losses that people affected by adoption may face in their lives? Yeah, so as I just mentioned, you know, for mothers, fathers and other family members, they experience the loss of of the baby who then becomes a child and an adult. And so they're losing a member of their family. And for adopted people in the forced and the closed adoption eras, um, you know, most of those have grown up not knowing who they are, not knowing where or who their original family was. Um, Even for people who've experienced the late discovery of adoption, they found out later during adulthood that they're actually adopted, well, then that sense of loss comes later because it's it's disruptive to who they thought they were. So all parties may experience, um, so in addition to those earlier losses, sorry, um, all parties may experience additional losses later in life. So If people attempt to search and reunite and are refused contact, well, that's another loss. Or even when a reunion does take place, um, we might lose the other party because at some point they might die or there are other ways that disconnection can happen. Or as you and Lois touched on, we might lose our adoptive parents and other significant people in our adoptive family. And for those who have already experienced previous loss and trauma, that can be even more complicated. Um, And then, of course, for biological parents, they at some point will probably lose their own parents. And many of those people uh, who are affected by adoption might have had a complicated relationship with their own parents surrounding that experience of adoption. They might not have felt supported and understood at the time, And that can make it harder to grieve that loss when their own parents pass away. Mm. Um, Jane, I have a really strong memory from childhood of this Sunday afternoon. Everyone was in the house having a nap after a roast lunch and I was outside playing alone. And I felt incredibly homesick. And I can remember wondering why I felt so homesick because I was at home. My parents and brother were all just metres away from me in the house. And it crossed my mind at the time that I might have been missing my original mother. And I quickly stomped on that idea because there was never any acknowledgement given that I had lost anything through adoption. And I thought that it was impossible to miss something that I had no memory of. Mm. So I struggled with that denial of having lost anything at all um, well into my 30s. What types of losses might have, what type of loss, I should say, Mm. might have led me to having those thoughts and feelings? Well, there's something called uh, ambiguous loss, which is very relevant to adoption. Um, It's a term that was developed by a lady called Pauline Boss at the University of Minnesota. And it refers to loss that doesn't necessarily 
um, have some of the same characteristics as other losses. So there might not be a sense of closure. There might not be social acknowledgement that it even is a loss. And there might not be rituals like, you know, when someone dies, we have a funeral, whereas with some other kinds of loss, we don't have that. So the fact that there's a lack of social support around those types of loss can lead to feelings of isolation or feelings of not being understood from others um, or by others. And I guess, as you said, um, you might not even realise yourself why you're feeling the way you are because you don't connect the dots that, oh, I've experienced a loss. Um, So they actually talk about one type of ambiguous loss as being when the lost person or the lost thing is psychologically present for us, but it's not physically present. They're not physically present. So adoption fits into this category because often we might know that we had another family and they might be very much in our mind, but we don't see them, we don't get to know exactly what that loss is. Um, And it's been talked about in other ways. So say when somebody goes missing or through immigration, when somebody moves away, um, they're still kind of there, they're still out there in the world, but they're not, we don't know where they are necessarily. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. Yeah, it's sort of um, been used in recent times in the context of IVF um, and, and children that might be conceived through IVF as having what they call a shadow parent where um, they might have a third parent out there that they don't know who that is. Um, so that's one type. The second type is if someone is physically present but psychologically absent. So that might be, for example, if you're caring for someone who has a mental illness um, or an addiction or a brain injury. So they are physically there, but we can't connect with them in the way that we may have been able to in the past or in the way that we might want to be able to connect with them. Yeah. Um, and these kind of losses have been described as stressful, tormenting, confusing, uncontrollable and exhausting. Um, they've also been associated with anxiety and depression, feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Um, so... Yeah, it kind of makes yeah. sense. And I, I guess it's good just to be aware that that might have impacted a lot of people um, that yeah. are affected by adoption. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are some overlaps between ambiguous loss and another term, which is called disenfranchised grief. Mm-hmm. That was coined by someone called Doka. Um, and disenfranchised grief refers to that, that aspect where there's not social acknowledgement that a loss has occurred. Um, I thought we might actually save that to talk about a little bit more because there's a particular social worker who's also a mother affected by adoption that's written widely uh, um, and was the first person I know of anyway to make that link between adoption and disenfranchised grief. So I'm hoping we might be able to maybe talk to her or we'll cover that um, in a later episode. Fingers crossed. Fingers Fingers crossed. crossed. Jane, um, Lois and I discussed in the previous episode the experience of beginning to grieve our adoptive parents' deaths before they died. Mm-hmm. What type of grief might relate to that experience? Yeah, this um, I think this relates to a type of loss that we call anticipatory grief, or a type mm-hmm. of grief, I should say, <laughs> anticipatory grief. Most people do think of grief as something that happens after a death or loss has occurred, However, that's not always the case. If we suspect that a loss might be coming, 
we can experience anxiety and dread in the lead up to that. So um, it might happen not only as we anticipate someone's imminent death, but along the way. So if, if you have a parent that's getting older or having health problems, which I know your dad was, um, yeah, we might start to grieve um, the little losses that, that occur along the way as that person starts to lose some of their capacities. So um, we sort of can anticipate um, the bigger the bigger loss and then some of the losses along the way. And yeah. that can be a really difficult process. But some studies have shown that then when the actual loss occurs, sometimes um, people then actually might grieve for a shorter period of time or with less intensity because they've already kind of done some of that grief work, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I yeah. personally feel like that grief process began for me many years before I lost my dad. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't speak about those feelings much because when I did, people would say, you should just enjoy him while he's here. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I was doing that, but mm -hmm. that feeling of anticipation and grief came from somewhere that I, I didn't really have a handle on at the time. Mm -hmm. Are there any other types of loss that we should be talking about for this episode? Yeah, I guess kind of the flip side in a way of that anticipatory grieving is when we don't know that a loss is coming and it kind of hits us out of the blue. Um, I can definitely relate to that one um, with what I mentioned about losing my adoptive parents. And and I know you talked last episode about losing your brother in, you know, very unexpected way yeah. a lot earlier in life. So, you know, that I guess that's another example Um and often, you know, it is documented that often traumatic loss, um, that's what thats what we kind of refer to this as, is associated with things like suicide, violent deaths, shocking accidents, or even unexplained deaths um, where, you know, the cause of death isn't clear um, or where the person that's been bereaved feels like maybe they could have done something to prevent the death. Um so it, it's not just, we don't just call something a traumatic loss because of the specific details of the death itself. It's because of, it's sorry, more related to how the person experiencing that loss feels about it. So what might shock and overwhelm one person might not shock and overwhelm another person. So it yeah. sort of um, depends on how it's interpreted. Um, but it's sort of been described as as being more complex in terms of, the feelings it provokes because it might have that grief aspect but also the trauma so it's can be a double whammy um, people have kind of described it as like being an emotional blender where everything's shaken up and you don't really know what to feel or think or you've got lots of um, feelings overwhelming you yeah yeah so the response to a loss then whether mm. it be before or after it occurs is grief what can you tell us about grief Probably a lot. Um, I, <laughs> um, what I was going to talk about is a model that has come to be called the dual process model of grief. Um, some researchers and practitioners called Strobe and Schutt came up with this term in the 90s um, because prior to that there was, there was a lot written about grief. Um, some people might be familiar with Kubler-Ross. Um, she had some stages of grief that are pretty widely known about that include um, stages like denial, 
anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Yeah, um, heard but, of those. But heard of those, yeah. Um, but this model kind of, um, not that it replaced it, but it's a newer model and um, and the reason it's quite useful because it's very easy to conceptualise and because we don't, with stages, we don't all go through the same stages necessarily and we might not go through them in the same order. And so, um, so what the dual process model says about grief is, well, at the heart of the model is the premise that as we process a loss, and that might be a death, but it also might be any kind of loss. You know, we might mm-hmm. lose a job or we might um, move away somewhere. We might have a relationship breakdown. Um, that as we process that loss, we we vacillate between, on the one hand, feeling and processing the emotions of that loss, and then on the other side, having to adjust to a new life and a new world where that lost person or that lost object isn't there anymore. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we kind of move um, backwards and forwards because we might be very much in our feelings, feeling the loss, but then we might have things going on and we often will have things going on in our life. Like we might have a job or we might have children that need taken care of or we might have to cook dinner or do some washing. Yeah. And um, as we go ap- about those tasks of life, we'll still be carrying with us the grief, um, but we're also kind of what they call reinvesting in life in in our ongoing life and I guess in building a new life that doesn't have that person in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very normal to, you know, some days or some weeks be more focused on the loss and the emotions and missing the person and then on other days to be a bit distracted and, you know, caught up in work or other tasks and that's really normal. Um, yeah. But I suppose um as we progress, you know, as time, as quite a bit of time goes by, typically we might spend more time um, reinvested in our new life and we might have a little bit more control over when we kind of revisit those grief feelings or when we think about that person that we still love and then um, have a bit more choice around when we kind of you know, need to focus on what we're doing. So typically, you know, as, well, say a year or multiple years go by, we have a little bit more control over um, how we think about our loss, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got to admit that I'm not uh, always a pin-up model for dealing with emotional issues. Mm-hmm. And two of my greatest emotional supports are not physically available to me at this time because of travel. And and for the most part, I find myself navigating the loss of my dad on my own. Mm-hmm. So I've been keeping pretty busy with work, parenting mm-hmm. and doing my part to support mum through the loss of dad. Yeah. Um, and these things have all been really welcome distractions, but it's only been four months since he passed. And in my case, that analogy of grief coming in waves and sometimes overwhelming us is is very true. However, for the mm-hmm. most part, I feel like I'm coping and moving forward. Um, that isn't always the case for everyone who's experienced a great loss. So yeah. how do we know whether we're moving through the grief process in a fairly balanced way or whether we've become stuck in some way and might need support? 
Yeah, that's a really good question um, because with what I mentioned about, I guess, the two sides of that coin, um, the two sides of grief, you can kind of picture it as like a pendulum moving backwards and forwards uh, between, you know, those times when those memories and feelings are quite strong and then other times when, as you say, you might be focusing on work, other relationships, um, that kind of thing. So while that pendulum is moving, um, that's considered quite a healthy process. And as I also said before, it's all, you know, sometimes we might spend a bit more time on one side um, and that's okay too. Sometimes people start to feel though, like they're kind of stuck, the pendulum's stuck on one side or the other side. So if it's stuck on the side of where you're feeling the loss, it might be that it's kind of all you can think about. You, you can't, you're not actually functioning very well at all in daily life. Um, and in some cases, that's actually associated with some people might feel suicidal thoughts because they might be thinking, I want to actually be with that person again. I cannot mm. see a way that I can go on living um, without this person. Um, so there can be you know, very intense yearning, um, feeling like life doesn't have meaning anymore. Um, and that's obviously quite concerning. Um, on the other side of that, somebody might be stuck on the other side um, where they're not wanting to think about the loss and they're actively maybe avoiding anything to do with the loss and feeling quite numb or maybe even actively numbing themselves like that might occur through use of alcohol or other substances um or even you know we use the term workaholism if you're kind of like compulsively um doing that as a way of kind of avoiding anything else and really it, it becomes concerning when it's concerning to the person experiencing it so if that person starts to feel like I'm not actually coping, um, you know, there might be some extra help that might be needed. Um, and the research kind of indicates that actually 80 to 90% of people will be able to cope with a loss on their own. Even if that loss is very painful, um, they will get through in their own way with their own supports. Um, however, about 10 to 20% of people uh, might experience what has um, become known as complicated grief. Um, so in some, so there's different schools of thought. Um, in some, some people consider that that can actually be like a mental health condition. Um, and there has been a condition uh, termed persistent complex bereavement disorder uh, in the latest um, diagnostic manual. Um, other people think that's that's wrong. You shouldn't pathologize grief because it's something we all go through. Um, but I, I guess the key message is that some people might become stuck, and in those cases, it can be very useful to reach out some, for some additional support. So, um, you know, visit your GP, or if you've already got a psychologist that you know of, go and see them, or reach out to a support service like us yeah. or someone else that can, you know, put you in touch with someone who's better placed to support you and that can be really important because sometimes not only do we feel stuck our loved ones might not know how to help us either if we're kind of experiencing mm. some of those you know bigger complexities so 
yeah, I think it's just uh, good to be aware of that. That it's a, it's yeah. a you know small minority, but it's still quite significant. Um, yeah. yeah. So you say eighty to ninety percent of people experiencing a loss will be able to cope. Um, why is it that ten to twenty percent of people might experience complicated grief and others don't? Well, there are definitely some risk factors um, that might make people at a greater risk of developing complicated grief. Um, one of those is the, to do with the nature of the loss itself. So, definitely what we mentioned, what we talked about before, with that traumatic loss, um, that can be a risk factor because um, if the death is sudden. Um, it can be harder to process. And also some of those traumatic losses actually have additional experiences. Um, like I said, there can be layers of trauma. So people might have to make decisions about life support, or organ donation. They might have to, um, well, there might be uncertainty around if the person has actually died, if, for example, they've gone missing. Um, so therefore it's harder to, to get a sense of closure or to know how to feel. Um, sometimes with traumatic losses, there might be some media attention involved or there might be court proceedings or coroner's investigations. So all of those things add complexity um, that can make it really difficult. And there are other, other factors such as the age of the person who has died so sometimes the younger, you know, when a young person dies, we can feel like that's kind of a, a bit more shocking in a way, only because it might challenge our assumptions about the world. If we kind of yeah. think, well, everyone gets old and then, you know, one day they pass away um, in a way that feels more predictable. But when we can't predict and something really shocking happens, um, it can, it can, you know, be really difficult. Um, also, you know, if you experience multiple losses close together, that can obviously be very overwhelming, um, as can if you've already experienced. So this is where we're talking, particularly in the context of adoption. If you've already experienced significant trauma earlier in life, then when additional losses happen later, it can be harder to cope with them. Um, and also for people that may already have um, a pre-existing mental health or addiction issue, we know that that's a risk factor as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess it's just good to be mindful of those things. It doesn't mean that just because you've got some of those risk factors, you've got to go get help um, the minute you yeah. experience another loss. But it can just help, I guess, guide um, that process of knowing, am I doing okay or, you know, do I want some extra help? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a lot to think about, Jane. Yeah. Um, so I guess just as we finish up, do you have any final thoughts or things that you think people should know? Um, I guess I'll just mention um, again that with, you know, with that link with adoption, um, sometimes, you know, those of us affected by adoption in whatever way we're affected can possibly be at greater risk Um when we experience other losses later in life because there's already those unique aspects of trauma and loss associated with adoption. So then when we add extra loss on top of that, um, it can be quite challenging. So, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out and talk through those things. And, and, yeah. and sometimes the first person you go to for help might not always 
um, be the right person that you feel comfortable talking to. Um, you know, we know there's there's research that we'll probably talk about another time that that does say that uh, that many people affected by adoption have gone to practitioners and felt misunderstood at times, felt like they haven't understood the adoption layer. So yeah. I guess I would just say don't give up. Um, keep, keep reaching out and try to find the right person that might understand your unique situation and, and try not to be too hard on yourself. And um, I guess, yeah, hearing stories like Lois's and your story and I've just shared a little snippet of my story um, it also shows how much resilience there can be, you know, that, yeah. and even together, like talking to other people that have similar experiences, coming to a support group um, can all, can help us feel stronger as well, um, help yeah, us feel absolutely. understood. Yeah. Well, Jane, thanks so yeah. much for talking through the issues of grief and loss with us today. Um, next episode, we'll be talking to Sue about her experience as a late discovery adoptee. And I just want to remind everyone to check the podcast notes page on the Jigsaw website for more information. So bye for now, Jane. Thanks, Joe. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.